Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the 49ers Plus podcast, where we talk 49ers insight and commentary plus other stuff. And today's episode, we are going to look at what it means that Jimmy G is back on the 49ers. We'll take a look at the initial 53-man roster for San Francisco, and in our plus section, we'll go around the league and discuss some notable cuts that were made today. And since college football kicked off this past weekend, we'll talk a little college football, we'll talk realignment, and what that could mean for the future of the sport. But first, let's dive right into 49er talk, and quite simply, what the Jimmy G return means to me is, it it feels great, baby, it really does. I slept really well last night, knowing that he was back on the team. That does not mean I have no faith in Trey Lance, and that doesn't mean that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch don't have any faith in Trey Lance. I think this made sense for both sides when all is said and done, and it's about security, right? It's about security for Jimmy. He looked around at the NFL landscape at some uh, possible job opportunities. Last week we talked Cleveland, we talked the Giants, Seattle has obviously always been looming out there if Jimmy was released, and he felt that San Francisco was the best place for him. Now, whether it's the best place for him to start, that's not true because uh, Kyle Shanahan came out and said Trey Lance is our starter and Jimmy Garoppolo is the backup, but both sides are comfortable with this, and it gives San Francisco security at the most important position in sports. This is a team that, for the better part of a decade, has been snake-bit with injuries everywhere, and Jimmy Garoppolo really headlining that with his availability or lack thereof uh, coming over from a trade in 2017, won his the first five and only five games he started to end the season. 2018, tore his ACL at Kansas City, missed 14 games. 2019 was a Super Bowl run, stayed healthy. 2020, he was injured again, tried to fight through it, but didn't. But remember, 2020 was the COVID year. Bosa tore his ACL. That's the second time that Nick Bosa has done that. He did it once in college, in addition to having... Uh, abdominal surgery um, leading up to the draft, and no one's calling him injury-prone, nor would I want to. Kittle was banged up, only played eight games. He has a lot of a lot of tread on the tires, given how much uh, he's used. So the whole team, and not the whole team, but a good number of players in 2020 missed time, which led to the, the abysmal uh, record and missing out in the playoffs. And last year, uh, Jimmy got hurt again, shoulder and finger ailments, played through it. Kyle decided to play Jimmy toward the end of the season instead of going with a healthy Trey Lance, which again was just an indicator that Trey was just not ready. And again, that's okay for someone who coming into this season has less than 400 career pass attempts both in college and with San Francisco. And listen, I I can relate to this be prepared uh, mantra that I think, you know, Kyle, uh, John Lynch, and even maybe to some extent Jimmy has. Uh, I live in the Northeast. Uh, I live in a town with a high water table. About a, about six months ago, we wound up getting water in our basement. To correct that, we uh, put a French drain in. We got a new sump pump. I got a water-powered backup pump. So I have a backup And then I have a backup to the backup, which is another sump pump, which is sitting in my basement next to the sump pit. 
And this third pump has a flexible hose attached to it that if anything goes wrong, if the main pump fails or if the backup can't keep up, I can drop that in there, run the flexible hose out the basement window and be hopefully dry. And on top of that, in my garage, I have a fourth pump. So maybe that's a little bit excessive, but I can understand the need for a backup and security, a little bit different in the real world versus the NFL. But again, the most important position in pro sports. And we all know the record San Francisco with Jimmy is a lot better in Kyle's reign than without Jimmy and those other quarterbacks being Brian Hoyer, CJ Beathard, Nick Mullins, obviously not star quarterbacks. They are backups for a reason, but Jimmy makes a difference. And if Trey Lance encounters any difficulty, any injury, I'd much rather, and if you're a 49er fan, and remember, it's not your money, so you shouldn't worry about the money aspect, you'd much rather have Jimmy backing up Trey Lance than Nate Sudfeld or Brock Purdy, and we'll and we'll get to that in, in a second. But again, we, you talked about earlier, you know, both sides wanted to be there. Remember, nobody is forcing Jimmy to sign with San Francisco. There's no gun to his head, and no one is and no one is forcing Kyle Shanahan or John Lynch to sign him. Apparently, this was a discussion that Kyle Shanahan had with Jimmy at the start of free agency, saying, listen, if you don't get a starting spot, you know, we want to trade you someplace that's going to give you an opportunity. If you don't like what's out there, consider coming back. And they did. His $25 million non-guaranteed salary, again, let's stress non-guaranteed, uh, should not have been a holdup for any trade talks because, again, the team trading for Jimmy would have had to renegotiate that $25 million non-guaranteed number down. It didn't look like it, do, it. Obviously, no team wanted to. Teams were more content with who they have on their roster. And the longer you go into training camp in the preseason, the more that would have been the mindset, right? Because if you wanted to trade for Jimmy, you would want to do it as early as possible to get him on board with the offseason program, acclimate himself to the offense, and start gaining some uh, chemistry um, with wide receivers and tight ends. But I think both of these players are mature enough to handle it. We don't know Jimmy, any of us, outside of folks in the actual media, who have talked to him regularly, but he seems like a pretty decent and stand-up guy. He hasn't rocked the boat uh, kind of like Debo Samuel did when he wanted his contract extension, scrubbing the Niners from his Instagram, saying he'll never play for them again. And look, he got a three-year extension from San Francisco. Jimmy was pretty quiet. Maybe it's because he was rehabbing his shoulder. Maybe that's just not his personality. Maybe he's a team-first guy, or maybe he's too mature for, for some of that nonsense. And Trey Lance was drafted not only because of his physical gifts, but he's apparently a very smart, mature person for being in his early 20s. Read today that when Kyle Shanahan told Trey Lance that Jimmy was coming back, Trey was excited. Uh, apparently, Trey and Jimmy get along really well. I think it's the media, it's outside forces that want to uh, burden you know, the team or the fans reading about it that, that these two players don't like each other or one's breathing down the other's neck, looking over the other's shoulder. It doesn't sound like it's the case, and I think it sounds like, at least if you believe what Kyle Shanahan's saying, I think, if nothing else, he and John Lynch have been very forthright when it comes to several, you know, issues. Uh, it doesn't look like there's any double talk. It's not smoke and mirrors. If you take what they say at face value, it has usually happened. Um, 
And it's it's a match that I think, you know, obviously works out for both sides and for Trey and for Jimmy. Listen, not too dissimilar in a way from what happened in 2012 between Alex Smith and, and Colin Kaepernick. Now, remember, Alex Smith got yanked mid-season. And I remember this, again, living in the Northeast because it happened during Hurricane Sandy. So Alex was uh, pulled after beating Arizona on a Monday night led the San Francisco 49ers to a 6-2 and record. Listen to this stat line. Went 18 of 19, 232 yards, three touchdowns, national television, Monday night football. After that game, San Francisco had a bye. After the bye week, or during the bye week, Jim Harbaugh, the coach at the time, announces that Colin Kaepernick is going to be the starter. He comes in his first game, ties the Rams 24-24. to Then they obviously go on a run to the Super Bowl where they eventually lost to the Baltimore Ravens. But think about that situation where a 6-2 and record, one incompletion against a division rival, nationally televised game, and you hear, you, you sound, you hear your head coach saying, well, that, well, that's not good enough. We have a good enough team to make a move to get to the Super Bowl. And Harbaugh was right. And that year, now we're going back 10 years, there was no internal strife between, again, Alex and Jimmy. I think a lot of similarities, either based on their play style, their limitations, they don't take chances with the football, a lot of captain checkdown happening with both quarterbacks, but good people that aren't going to rock the boat. And then the more dynamic quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, who again, let's remember, 2012 was his second year. He sat all of 2011, he came in for a couple gadget plays like Trey Lance did last year, but he wasn't ready until midseason 2012. Trey, whether we believe that he's ready or not, is going to be starting week one, but has that Alex Smith type mentor behind him. And it's much like with Alex Smith in 2012, Jimmy is only going to be here this year. In 2012, at the end of the season, uh, Alex Smith was traded to the Kansas City Chiefs for two second round picks. Jimmy does not have another year left on his contract. His contract was renegotiated down from uh, about $25 million, of which only one and a half was going to count against the salary cap, to a fully guaranteed $6.5 million, plus $500,000 in roster bonuses, meaning if he's on the roster for all 17 weeks, he gets an additional $500,000, and that could be amortized you know, per week, um, 500,000 divided by 17, should he get traded midseason? And we'll talk about that um, in a second. So right off the bat, it saves San Francisco between 17 and $18 million on the cap. If Jimmy has to come in and play, he stands to make um, about uh, $19 million um, overall, or, or $17 million overall. So that would still save San Francisco seven to $8 million versus what his salary was coming into the season. Jimmy has a no-trade clause, but he can waive that. If an injury happens between now and the trading deadline in October um, for a team that uh, would be interested in trading him. Now, I don't think that's going to happen if for the sole reason then, um, unless a team starts out hot, let's, I don't even know if it's Cleveland, um, it doesn't have to be any of the teams that he was rumored to going to, but a team that has playoff aspirations that loses their starting quarterback could look to Jimmy. The issue is if they trade for him, he's going to be non-functional for a month, right? So when San Francisco traded for him um, 
in October of 2017. He was he did not play until the last five games of the season, which is essentially end of November um, through December. So they're not going to get no team trading for Jimmy is going to get immediate help. They're going to hope that their backup keeps the team afloat for a couple games, maybe can go two and two. And then Jimmy can come in when he grasps the offense and keeps pushing that team toward the playoffs. But to me, I don't, I'm not wishing injury on anybody. I don't care if it's worth a draft pick or two. Um, I just I don't see how it's that viable a solution. I can certainly be wrong. Um, but we'll see. And keeping Jimmy on the roster, even though San Francisco would get no trade compensation if they do not trade him, obviously, he could uh, net them a compensatory pick. And it's been rumored that he could net them a third-round pick um, in the 2024 draft, so two drafts from now. But, or the, yeah, 2024 draft, excuse me. Um, but there's a calculation that goes into that. Compensatory picks are calculated based on the number of um, free agents you lose and factoring in the number of free agents that you sign. So it could be as high as a third, potentially, um, but it could be lower. No matter what, if Jimmy goes, they get a draft pick. If they trade him, if he stays, they're going to get compensation as well, which is a good thing. Um, and, and right, obviously, this was one of the biggest storylines um, this offseason, what was going to happen with Jimmy Garoppolo, and it's compounded by social media it's compounded by the 24-7 news cycle. Um, all the shows that are devoted to the NFL and sports, uh, podcasts like this one and others that are much more, more widely known. So it's more in the public consciousness now, right? Versus, you know, think about in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, when San Francisco traded for Steve Young. Joe Montana was still on the roster, Still at that point, a two-time Super Bowl champion. Remember, Young was traded before San Francisco won in 88 against Cincinnati, and obviously before they beat Denver the following year to go back-to-back. If that happens today, can you imagine between Reddit, other message boards, talk radio, podcasts, TV, the discussion between a Hall of Fame quarterback, Joe Montana, and the young athletic southpaw that's coming in as his backup, it would be seen as World War III or two alpha males that are going at each other's throats. Now, you learned after the fact that they got along pretty well. Now, did Steve Young want to start? Absolutely. You know, any competitor wants to. Did Joe Montana want to hold him off and be remain the starter? And he did win two extra Super Bowls in San Francisco. Of course, but I think that you could just chalk that up to competitive fire um, between two alpha males and, and athletes. And then, of course, Joe Montana does eventually get traded again to Kansas City um, after he hurt his elbow in the uh, 1991 NFC Championship game against the Giants. He was hurt for over a year once he finally did get healthy, and it was established that it was Steve Young's team. Joe got traded. A more recent example, and this is, again, still before the Twitter takeoff and Instagram and all these other types of um, audio and, and video and media outlets, Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre. Now we're going back to 2005, the year that Alex Smith was drafted. Rodgers slides down to the end of the first round, and he sat for three years behind, again, another Hall of Fame quarterback. Now that relationship was frosty, and, and both have come out and, and kind of admitted that. 
Um, then again, Aaron Rodgers isn't, you know, really the warmest person. Uh, Brett Favre was, you know, he, he was, was and still is in a lot of ways Mr. Green Bay. So I'm sure he was caught off guard that a first round pick was drafted or they took uh, a quarterback in the first round. But again, he did play for three more years, 2005 through 2007, um, before he, you know, eventually made his way um, to another team. But again, if that happened today, can you imagine the surround sound that would happen to it? The only thing that I think is uh, in a weird way, it's not an apples to apples comparison for what's going to happen this year. But to me, I think the biggest possible um, cause of chatter or unhappiness could be with the Tampa Bay wide receivers. I know that's weird to say, and I think Tom Brady will be the ultimate uh, calming factor, or at least the, the lead dog that's going to be barking to keep everybody in line. But you have Mike Evans, you have Chris Godwin coming off of an ACL and, and not sure if he's going to be ready for the start of the season. They signed Russell Gage, who had a really good year on a depleted, you know, Falcons team last year to be either the number two or number three when Chris Godwin comes back. And a couple weeks ago, they signed Julia Jones. Now, I'm not saying any one of those receivers is a diva, but there's only one football I'm not sure if any of those four, Russell Gage or Julio Jones, is going to play special teams. I, I doubt Julio Jones will. So I'm not saying that the apple cart there is going to get upset. And if anyone can keep everybody in line, it will be it would be Tom Brady. But I think that's just a potential area for today if anybody starts chirping. Now, Antonio Brown not being there is going to help a lot. Um, but that's just something maybe to, to keep their keep your on just in terms of any sort of wide receiver diva unhappiness hey, at this point listen julio jones just may want to ring he may not care if he catches 30 35 passes um he just may want to actually get that elusive super bowl ring which he had a few years ago with with kyle shanahan uh in the atlanta falcons but shanahan decided not to run the ball when they were in field goal range at the end of the game but that's neither here nor there so that's our our jimmy talk uh again i think it's only a good thing for San Francisco. It makes their quarterback room stronger, better than it was 48 hours ago. And let's keep talking about the team and the roster as now we're going to jump into the, uh, the the initial, and it's important to say initial because things are going to change, the 53-man roster for San Francisco. So we're going to start at quarterback where we know who the first two are, Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo. What's interesting, though, is... Kyle and John Lynch decided to go with Brock Purdy on the active roster. So seventh round draft pick, last pick of the draft, Mr. Irrelevant. Had a pretty good preseason um, over Nate Sudfeld, who in the offseason, they gave him guaranteed $2 million to be on the team. Now, if Jimmy's not here, Nate Sudfeld is, and he is your veteran backup, but he's a veteran in name only. He's been in the league several years, but he doesn't really have much playing time, and I'm not sure how much guidance he could really offer um, Trey Lance. So I think San Francisco made the Brock Purdy addition for a couple reasons. I guess they weren't totally convinced that he would make his way through waivers and onto the practice squad. So they're they're guessing that another team is going to sign Brock Purdy to their active roster. I'm not sure about that. I mean, this is a seventh round draft pick, last pick of the draft, only familiar with San Francisco's system. I mean, how desperate would another team have to be to not sign a quarterback that was in their system for training camp to the practice squad 
and instead grab another quarterback and a not highly touted one at that. And the only way that that team can get Purdy would be to put him on the active roster. They could try to woo him onto the practice squad, but that's that would not be the route that that a Purdy signing somewhere else would have gone. So interesting. The only uh, mystery left here is if Nate Sudfeld signs with another team, whatever that amount is would offset um, part of the $2 million that San Francisco owes him. So if he signs with another team for a million dollars, San Francisco would only owe him a million. The other team is paying a million. That equals the $2 million. San Francisco would get some savings there. So we'll see. Running back, a little bit of a surprise here and maybe um, a bit of a nod to how they're going to or not going to use Debo Samuel. So six running backs in total. Your starter being Elijah Mitchell, uh, Kyle Juszczyk starting you know, at fullback, the only fullback on the roster. Um, and then behind Mitchell, Jeff Wilson Jr., Ty Davis-Price, the rookie out of LSU, Trey Sermon, second-year running back out of Ohio State, who did not have a great preseason. But again, as I said last week, I don't think Kyle and John Lynch quickly give up on high draft picks. And the surprise being Jordan Mason, the undrafted rookie out of Georgia Tech, who had the best preseason out of all of the running backs, makes the team. So five running backs, one fullback, Jermichael Hasty, the smaller change of pace, third round back, uh, was cut. But I definitely envisioned him making the practice squad. So five running backs. When I said, what, what could this be a nod to is, you know, maybe this is a signal to Debo that they're not going to use him as much um, at running back this year. Now, I don't think all five running backs are going to be active on game days. It still may be four, but at least they have that extra body in case of injury, which is really what thrust Debo into a running back role um, last year down the stretch. So nice segue into wide receiver. So they kept five. I thought they would keep six. Um, but you have to cut, obviously, somewhere um, to, to keep an extra quarterback, one, and to keep an extra running back. So the wide receivers being Debo, Brandon Ayuk, uh, Jawan Jennings, Ray Ray McLeod, and uh, draft pick Danny Gray. Uh, Malik Turner, who I thought would sneak onto the team as a gunner, as a special teams contributor, uh, was cut, as was Willie Sneed, um, the longtime Saint and Baltimore Raven. One of those two, if not both, I think will make its way to the practice squad. San Francisco is not... Uh, a run-and-shoot team. Ideally, they want to run the ball more than they pass it or very close to a 50-50 split. So I can see the rationale going with five receivers instead of six. Um, but I think Turner and or Sneed will make its way you know, to the practice squad. Again, you're hedging. Just in case of an injury, you can call a player up and be active on game day. Um, tight ends, initially three. And we'll get into what initially means in a second. So, of course, George Kittle... Uh, Werner and Ross Dwelly are the three, the same three as last year. Um, they cut Troy Fumagalli and Tyler Croft. Now, I was reading before um, recording this that Tyler Croft will be brought back because they're going to be making some corresponding roster moves, putting players that were on, um, who made the 53 onto short-term IR, and that's actually going to be a, lineback- a linebacker uh, and a safety which we'll get to uh, momentarily. So four tight ends on the active roster. Not heavy. It is what Kyle likes to do, but I thought that they could um, get away with three because outside of Kittle, again, they have not developed a legitimate number two target at tight end. Not to say that Tyler Croft is going to be that, but I think 
it's another option on the roster, and we'll see uh, how many are active on game day. Offensive line, they went with nine. One surpri- not The number isn't a surprise. I thought they would go with nine, but who the ninth was uh, was a surprise to me. So you're starting five, unless they change something up in the next two weeks leading up to the opener at Chicago. So Trent Williams, Aaron Banks, Jake Brendel at center, Spencer Buford, the rookie, well, at right guard, and Mike McGlinchey at right tackle, who should be healthy. If not, Kyle Shanahan has already come out and said Colton McKibbitts is, is basically the swing tackle and would start for McGlinchey if Mike's unable to go. Daniel Brunskill uh, makes it as a backup. He can play anywhere on the line. Versatility is important. Jalen Moore, second-year player, guard tackle flexibility. And Nick Sakil, the rookie out of Fordham, who has tackle and guard experience, played all four years at Fordham, um, steadily improved over the course of training camp in the preseason. He makes it as the ninth offensive lineman. Um, Jordan Mills uh, was among the cuts at tackle. Um, I thought he had some uh, potential to make the roster, but I guess just as a tackle, uh, that wasn't maybe the flexibility that Shanahan was looking for. Um, Justin Skule, coming off of an ACL injury, just did not look great. Keaton Sutherland got a lot of playtime at center the last two preseason games, did not look great. And Jason Poe, Um, a rookie who a lot of people were high on, um, undrafted, had a decent showing in the preseason, did not have a great game against the Texans. He was cut as well. So those four linemen, I can see two of them making um, the practice squad. But the O-line, the nine was logical. But again, Nick Sakil being the surprise, the rookie out of Fordham. The defensive line, they're starting with nine, but they're going to increase it to 10. So the starters... Uh, being Nick Bosa, Javon Kinlaw, Eric Armstead, and Samson Ebucom. And the backups being Drake Jackson, Kerry Hyder at the end, Kevin Givens, Hassan Ridgeway at D-Tackle, and Charles Amenahu, who can play across the defensive line. Um, Jordan Willis, Kimiko Torre, and Akeem Spence were cut. Jordan Willis, again, had that uh, very important punt block in Green Bay during last year's playoffs, is going to be brought back. Uh, because, again, there's going to be a corresponding roster move putting uh, two players on I, on short-term um, IR. Linebackers, um, they went heavy twice, in my opinion. So they're initially carrying six. Um, it's going to get knocked it's going to get knocked down to five, but uh, Fred Warner, Dre Greenlaw, and Aziz Al-Shair are starters, or at least two of the three are starters because of the uh, amount of time teams are in nickel defense nowadays. Oren Burks brought in for special teams. Demetrius Flanagan-Fowles um, has steadily improved as a linebacker in his time here, and Curtis Robinson was kept, but he's injured. He's going to go on short-term IR, obviously opening up one of the spots for either Tyler Croft um, or Jordan Willis. Um, six linebackers, just curious that, that Curtis Robinson is, is being kept. He could have been released with an injury settlement going with five linebackers might've felt heavy, but I can understand it just giving the talent. Um, so carrying that extra one, um, a sixth was a bit of a curious move because I think they could have gone with another corner. They're only carrying five cornerbacks. I shouldn't say only. I mean, four would be an only number. I think five is, is in a way, a happy medium. But Charvarius Ward, Emmanuel Mosley, the starters. Samuel Womack, um, the rookie uh, who won 
the nickel spot with an impressive uh, preseason. Ambry Thomas and Yamador Lenore and their second years round out the backups. Not a surprising cut, but Tariq Castro-Fields, I thought, had a decent preseason. Um, he's an exclusively an exclusive boundary cornerback. He can only play on the outside. Um, that was somewhat surprising. Um, actually, I'd be more surprised if he doesn't make the pa- practice squad. Maybe not so surprising that he didn't make um, the 53-man roster. And at safety... Jimmy Ward, Talano, Hufanga, Tervarius Moore, and George Odom. Uh, Jimmy Ward is going to be going on short-term IR also. Uh, he'll be missing the first four weeks of the season. We'll see what that means um, for safeties, if they're going to try to, to bring on a fourth. Um, the surprise cuts here, Dante Johnson and Tayshawn Gibson. Dante Johnson has been on and off the 49ers roster so much the past six years I can't imagine him not being on the team in some capacity whether it's practice squad or otherwise and Tayshawn Gibson was brought in because of the Jimmy Ward injury 32 year old 10 year vet um again practice squad eligible but it looks like right now they're going to be rolling with three safeties um for the week one game at Chicago and specialists Robbie Gold Mitch Wisnowski kicker and punter respectively and Tabor Pepper as the long snapper so again not a lot of um, surprises. Initial roster, we talked about the um, players that are coming back and two players that are going on short-term IR. And between now and the beginning of the regular season, I know Kyle Shanahan was not thrilled with the interior of the offensive line. So that obviously being Aaron Banks, Jake Brendel, and Spencer Burford, they may be bringing in, they have been bringing in uh, other offensive linemen to take a look. So there could definitely be some additional roster juggling between now and and the uh, beginning of the season. Uh, but that's going to conclude our, our 49ers portion. We'll be right back to talk about uh, the plus section of the podcast right after this. All right, welcome back. So the plus section this week, let's take a look around the league at some notable NFL cuts and talk about college football. So one of the more notable NFL, one of the more notable cuts, if you're a 49er fan, was... Safety Jukowski Tart was released by the Eagles. Um, obviously famous for dropping the interception in the NFC Championship game last year against the Rams with about 10 minutes to go. Important to note that that interception would have guaranteed nothing unless San Fran could have put another touchdown on the board and, and the offense was struggling mightily in the second half. But again, when we're talking about security, a player that knows the system was with San Francisco exclusively during his whole career whole career prior to his contract being up at the end of last season. It wouldn't shock me if they potentially um, bring him in. He is practice squad eligible because he has more than four years of service in the league. Um, So that is just something that we can potentially keep our eye on. um, If they don't bring Dante Johnson back, who has corner slot and safety flexibility, I just can't see them just having three healthy safeties on the roster for the for the first month of the season. But we'll see. Going around the league, again, just a handful of notable cuts. Tight end O.J. Howard, um, formerly of the Buccaneers, was cut uh, by the Buffalo Bills. I thought he and, and Dawson Knox would have made a nice tight end combo. That's not going to happen. Miami, with its stable of running backs, is, is cutting former uh, Ram and Patriot Sony Michelle. Um, Jets preseason MVP quarterback Chris Streveler, who engineered all four fourth quarter come from behind wins, or all three, I should say, excuse me, for the Jets, um, was cut. That's just a numbers game between Joe Flacco, Mike White, um, 
and Wilson once he gets healthy. But I can I can totally see Strebler making his way to the practice squad. The Ravens released running back Corey Clement, uh, which was interesting at first, just given the injuries that they have at running back. Um, J.K. Dobbins coming off of an ACL, Gus Edwards coming off of an injury. He's going to start the season on the pup list. So to lose any running back was curious, but they are signing former Raider Kenyon Drake um, to bolster the, the running back core. Same with the Texans releasing uh, running back Marlon Mack, formerly of the Colts, um, which means rookie Damian Pierce from Florida um, is going to be the number one starter. Important only for fantasy purposes because there are not many players on the Texans that are important for fantasy or, you know, frankly, over, overall. Um, staying with the running back theme, the Colts released um, veteran Philip Lindsay, which means behind Jonathan Taylor, you have Naheem Hines, who's really a third round back, and Deion Jackson, who's a second year player out of Duke. So they're only, it's a run heavy team, and they only have three running backs on the active roster in Indianapolis, which is somewhat uh, interesting. Uh, the Raiders mentioned cutting Kenyon Drake at, at running back. They also released um, guard tackle Alex Leatherwood, uh, only notable or, or mainly notable because he was a first round draft pick in 2021. It did not work out. Uh, a lot of people said that that uh, Leatherwood was overdrafted by at least a round. So even if you say he's a third round pick, that's surprising to give up on him after only a year. The Cowboys, listen to this, they released all three of their backup quarterbacks uh, behind Dak Prescott. So Ben DiNucci, Will Greer, and Cooper Rush. Now they're not going into week one with one quarterback with just Dak Prescott uh, active. Um, but it's just interesting that they released all three. I mean, Cooper Rush had a good season last season. If you remember, he stepped in against the Vikings when Prescott got hurt, won them that game, is familiar with the system. Uh, Maybe he's the one that comes back. Maybe they're seeing if someone else shakes free. But again, the only team in the league who right now has one quarterback on the active roster. Your uh, overvalued uh, and always underperforming Dallas Cowboys. Staying with the quarterbacks, so the Vikings released two quarterbacks. The second one being a little bit of a surprise. So Sean Mannion was released. And Kellen Mond, who was a 2021 third-round pick and who many thought would be the heir apparent to Kirk Cousins, um was released. Now, again, one or both of these can make their way to the practice squad. Um, but the backup for Kirk Cousins this year is Nick Mullins, who was traded from the Raiders, former 49er Nick Mullins, traded from the Raiders to Minnesota. He's the only other quarterback right now on the Vikings active roster. He was traded for a conditional seventh round pick. So he is your backup uh, in Minnesota. And lastly, Seattle, the Seahawks cut um, quarterback Jacob Eason. I mean, at this point, I guess if you're going into the season with Geno Smith and Drew Locke, why have a third subpar quarterback on your roster? Again, he'll probably make his way to the practice squad, but the the Geno Smith-Drew uh, Locke battle is over. Geno Smith won. Congratulations to him. That team is going to be five or six wins at best, and Jacob Eason will be on the practice squad. So... Shifting gears now to college football. So this past weekend, college football kicked off. It, it Great when real football games are back. I mean, it's awesome that preseason NFL was back. But great to see some college football as well. So 11 games kicked off this past weekend, highlighted by uh, Nebraska at Northwestern. Um, they were playing over in Europe. Um, got a chance to watch some of that game. I'm um, not sure if you guys did. 
I'm not sure if you got to see um, head coach Scott Frost, who tried an onside kick while up 28-17 to in the third quarter and ultimately wound up losing the game 31-28. Um, so a pretty decent game highlighted by a pretty terrible decision. Um, but it's great that college football is back. And as it's not going to affect anything this year, but you know the talk of, of realignment, teams jumping conferences is gaining more traction. Obviously, this is something that's going to happen, whether college football is left with two or three super conferences and everybody else, who knows? Um, but, you know, last year the ball got rolling with, you know, Texas and Oklahoma announcing that they were going to move from the big 12, the two biggest teams in the big 12 to the sec in 2025. So they still have, you know, three seasons, um, before they can get out of their big 12 contract. Um, and more recently USC and UCLA of the PAC 12, is going to be moving to the Big Ten in two years by 2024 once they fill their obligations to the Pac-12. So those are the first really four dominoes to fall within the past 18 months um, that got the ball rolling and a lot of momentum for you know the, the super conference idea. Now there's rumors that BYU, Cincinnati. University of Central Florida and Houston are going to move to the Big 12 next year. Um, seems like a pretty pretty big jump, but I guess given um, they don't maybe maybe they don't have such strong conference ties um, to where they play. Actually, BYU is an independent. Um, Cincinnati obviously having that great run last year uh, as part of the American um, football conference, but those four could be in the Big 12 um, next year. So, you know, ultimately, what does this mean? Realignment overall. Nobody has really any idea, um, but it's going to happen. And when that happens, obviously, the talk of the college football playoff is going to occur again. And the discussions of whether it's, you know, eight teams or 16 teams um, is going to come up. But I think there's a lot of overthinking when it comes to how college football, you know, can realign. Um, we can call this the Moriello plan. No one will listen to it uh, other than the people listening to this podcast. And I don't think anyone's going to take my advice. But sometimes, you know, Occam's razor, you know, the, the easiest, most obvious solution is the correct one. Uh, so when you look at college football, or at least Division One, you know, the football bowl subdivision, the FBS, there's 131 teams. Now, any given year, really only 10, 15, 20 teams at the most have a legit shot at winning the national championship, and everybody else is just there to play their games, get decent conference positioning, and you know make one of the bevy of, of bowl games that happens uh, at the end of the season. But I think to me, what an easy fix would be, if you think about numerically splitting um college football in half, you know, the big boys and then everybody else, you get a pretty even split. So if you take the ACC, the Big 12, the Pac-12, the Big 10, the SEC, and Notre Dame, and I hate saying and Notre Dame because they are a, a God's gift to college football nationally televised on NBC independent um, because they think or know they're that important. 
those five conferences and Notre Dame leaves you with 65 teams. Those, to me, are the big boys. Then you have everybody else. You have the American Football Conference. You have the Mid-American, the Mountain West, Conference USA, Sun Belt, and then Independence. Six with B, if you count BYU, but BYU, again, if they're moving over to the Big 12, they could be considered you know, one of the, the big boys. So that leaves you with, depending on how you're looking at it, 66 or 65 teams in the lesser conference, the non-big boy conference. To me, that however the, the conferences shake out, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, Big 10, and SEC, those are the teams and the conferences or the mega conference that should be competing for a national championship. Everybody else can still have bowl games. The other 65, 66 teams, you could still have bowl games, have some sort of recognition for winning your conference, um, you know, play in, in obviously the, the lesser known bowls, but you're not really part of the bigger national conversation. And to me, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, Big 10, SEC, and Notre Dame, um, if you have those 65 teams, again, now that doesn't mean all 65 teams have legitimate shots at major bowl games or a national championship. Not the case. Again, 10, 15, 20 teams any given year really, really have a chance. But those 65 teams in the big boy conferences, to me, the stipulation is you can only play teams within that 65-team mega conference. You can't start beating up on Division II teams. You can't start playing the Tulsas of the world or Eastern Michigan or Western Michigan, Buffalo. You can't. Um, there's a reason why in college football, um, conference games don't start until really the second months. You really get like generally three, four, sometimes five games before conference game starts. And it's done really for two reasons. One, money. These lesser teams get paid and they get paid handsomely to go to an Ohio State, an Alabama, a Georgia, and to get their brains beat in. But it's also a de facto preseason for the bigger boys in college football before they start getting into the meat of their schedule, which is usually conference play. So you're still going to have teams like uh, a Boston College or a Kansas or a Duke that you have to play. They're in they're in your conference, um, but you really can't go that step down um, to a Nevada or a San Diego State or an Air Force um, you'll still have, teams will still have quote unquote easy winnable games, but it has to be within their mega conference. So that's, that's part one of who you can play. And then everybody in the American, American conference, USA, those 65, 66 teams, they can play amongst themselves. Um, I don't mean that in, in a, in a bad way or a negative way, but that's their, those are their peers. And I think that'll make for more competitive games week in and week out, um, for those five conferences and in independence, however that shakes out. Now, what this means for a playoff, listen, I can get behind however these conf super conferences shake out that if you win your conference, you get an automatic bid to whatever the playoff is. Four teams, six teams, eight teams, 12, 16, whatever. But let's just look at right now, top eight versus top 16. And I, I would be okay with either. So if you have an eight-team playoff, that means there's three games max that a team playing for the national championship would play. Obviously, the round of eight, the round of four, the two semifinal games, the national championship, three games. If you go top 16, it's one extra game that you would have to play if you were one of the two teams playing for the national championship. To me, I think I think eight's 
fine. I think it's too much of a, a sea change of a leap going from 4 to 16. We may get there eventually, but again, for me, common sense and doing something that just makes a lot of logical sense to me, if you go top 8 teams, that means there are 7 games total. So 4 in the first round, 2 in the second round, and the championship game. That's 7 games. That's where I think you can tie in the bigger bowls. So the Cotton Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Fiesta, the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, and the Rose Bowl. Those are six. And the seventh game, the National Championship, can be played at a neutral field. It's been been played um, in Jerry World, in Dallas, where the Cowboys play. You can have that on a neutral site. But for my money, you're pulling in the six major bowls having them be part of the playoff. And it would rotate every year, right? If the Cotton Bowl gets the first round in in year one, in year two, it would get the second round. Same thing for Peach Fiesta. There would would be no inequality. Now, what the hang-up here is going to be is tradition, which the, the people that are conference leads, chairmen's, care about tradition more than I think the players or the viewers do. Meaning, you know, the Rose Bowl has always historically been a Pac-12 uh, Big Ten type of game. There are some ties with the Cotton Bowl, the Fiesta, the Sugar and the Orange. Um, but if you can just wipe that away and understand that Rose Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, you're going to have the eyes of the football nation on you during this playoff every year, regardless of what, you know, if you're playing a first round game or a second round game, I think that that may not be in and of itself enough to break tradition, but you know what will Money, And that's ultimately what this is all going to come down to when it comes to realignment, which teams go to which conferences, and then how ultimately the bowl games are going to be divvied up or reorganized to accommodate um, a larger playoff. So again, my solution, you have the big boy conferences, you have the smaller team conferences, 65 and 66 teams uh, respectively, they play each other. Everyone still has bowl games. You have a larger playoff. Let's go to eight teams. Let's tie in the six main bowls. Let's play the national championship on a neutral site and go from there. Um, This is August 30th, 2022. Uh, I'm speaking it out to the world. Maybe I can speak it out to existence and something that we can revisit um, when the super alignments are are solidified and any sort of playoff expansion is discussed. Um, so that wraps our second episode. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're going to be back next week. I'm looking to, um, release a weekly podcast either on a Tuesday or Wednesday, just depends on when I can record, uh, and when I'm able to release it. Uh, but next week we'll talk about, um, obviously we're going to talk about the 49ers more because that's why this podcast exists. We'll take a look at any additional roster changes, a, a sneak peek ahead to week one. We'll make some picks And then uh, I'm going to give a little bit more thought to the plus section to see what we're going to be talking about, whether it's other sports, there's been some interesting stuff happening in the NBA, trades or no trades, Um, some things in in TV that's that's been pretty interesting, at least to me, maybe not to you, Uh, but we'll have a lot of good plus stuff to talk about um, next week. So guys, I hope everyone out there uh, enjoys their week. Um, Have a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll talk next week. Take care.